Well, praise God. Amen? Praise God. <clears throat> Amen. Again, what a tremendous privilege it is to come together and worship our Lord. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to his holy and inspired word. I'm going to have you turn to Exodus chapter 33. Verse for this morning is Genesis 1-1. We're going to start, though, Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. This is God's word. Then Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So now I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I might find favor in your sight. See also that this nation is your people. And Yahweh said, my presence shall go with you. I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Indeed, how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I in your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Then Yahweh said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. No man can see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there. On the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, you shall see my back, my face shall not be seen. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for the tremendous privilege of coming together as your people, your set apart people, your church, your body. It's just such a tremendous joy to sing praises to your name. You are worthy of our praise, you and you alone, and it's a delight to give it to you. So we do so this morning. We continue our worship now as we open up your inspired word. We love you, Lord. We love your word. We love your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, Happy New Year to you. Yes, I hope everyone's had a wonderful couple of weeks with family and friends. We are really, really looking forward to diving into our Uh, study in Genesis. This is the foundational book of the whole scripture. The whole scripture, the seeds of many major doctrines are developed uh, throughout the scriptures. They're developed right here in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, really in the first chapter alone, and even within the first verse of the first chapter. And it doesn't end there. Then we get to see some intriguing narrative accounts in the lives of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, you know, we did discuss the possibility of going through some other books. Ephesians, we thought, 
That would be fun. We're going to do that on Sunday nights, though. Ecclesiastes, that's a personal favorite of mine. That's a strong contender, we thought. Or should we just keep on trucking and hit Romans? Romans 1, that would have been great, right? Uh, You really can't go wrong. Any of the 66 books of the Bible would have been an absolute delight to go through as a body. But ultimately, we all decided together at that time to go back. How far back? Way back. (laughs) Way back. Back to the beginning. Even before that, as we'll see, uh, even before time itself begins, as the eternal, sovereign, omnipotent God of all creation begins to speak everything into existence, all things by the word of his power. So by God's grace for the next however many years it takes, that's what we'll be studying together as a church. And to begin, uh, I thought it'd be appropriate to do somewhat of a hybrid introduction sermon, which would be a blend of our annual read your Bible message uh, and a time uh, to combine it with, with our new book here, okay, to preview our new book here. What better way to begin than to consider its human author, Moses, who was, of course, under the divine inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, who was the primary author. But Moses was the human agent by which the Spirit used to write down his holy testimony. So I think it's only appropriate that we uh, see how he ended up here. You know, I know it's been real trendy in the past few years for uh, liberal pastors and professors in their liberal theological institution and churches to do what they always do in their never-ending quest to diminish the validity of the scriptures as they continue to question the authorship of each and every book of the Bible, including and maybe primarily Moses' authorship in the first five books, certainly Genesis. I know that that's been the trend, even with the many clear references to the law of Moses or the book of the law of Moses strewn throughout the pages of both the Old and New Testaments from Joshua to Jeremiah to Nehemiah and Malachi to Peter himself in the temple in Acts chapter 3 to Paul in his epistles and even Christ himself who used the writings in the Torah in the name of Moses as its author, as the foundation that they were resting their arguments upon when they were dealing with the hard-hearted men of their day, of their time. I know it's trendy to question whether or not Moses is actually the human author of the first five books in the Bible. But frankly, I don't really care about what's trendy amongst liberal professors and their liberal theological institutions and churches. You know, I've got a real scholarly and intellectual name for these folks. You know what it is? Unbelievers. (laughs) I think you'll notice throughout our time together We're not going to get into a lot of the objections or philosophies or theories of man, even those who claim to be Christians, not when it comes to the authenticity of either the miraculous narrative accounts we'll soon read about, not even in the very creation of the world itself. We're just going to go through the scriptures together, and we're going to say, here's what the text says in its plain, literal sense just like we did with Acts, just like we did with Mark and the Psalms. We'll maintain a consistent hermeneutic, a consistent method of interpretation all throughout. We're taking the approach of, as always, here's what the Scripture says. Challenges? Of course. Tensions? For sure. 
Truths we cannot grasp or fathom in our finiteness? Absolutely. But we're not going to go out of our way to make ourselves feel better about these tensions by diving deep into theories formed in the hearts and the minds of wicked, unregenerate men. We just can't do it. We don't have the time. (laughs) For now, let's meet up again with the divinely inspired human author of Genesis, Moses. Okay? To do that, I'd ask you to turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. By this point in Exodus, the reader has already seen Jacob and his family being rescued from severe famine. We've seen Joseph and his descendants living peaceably in the land of Goshen. We've seen a full generation of the people of Israel being strengthened, growing in number. So much so that this new pharaoh of Egypt, who Moses said did not know Joseph, became nervous that the Hebrews were going to rise up against him, so he preemptively attacked and enslaved the Hebrew people. Even attempting to coerce their midwives to murder all of the newborn males at the moment of delivery, proving that the slaughter of the most vulnerable among us is not just an American tradition, but it's something that wicked men, along with their father the devil, have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. Anyhow, one of these little babies, who was fortunate enough to have escaped the Egyptian version of Planned Parenthood, uh, as he had a mother and a sister who loved him so dearly that they kept him hidden uh, for three months before sending him down the Nile River in a basket where he would be found by Pharaoh's daughter, who named the child Moses, said it was because I drew him out of the water. He was raised in the household of Pharaoh with all the advantages of an Egyptian prince, but he knew he was a Hebrew. One day he goes out and he looks at his people who are in bondage. He sees them being brutalized by the Egyptian taskmasters. At one point he witnessed an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, infuriating him to the point where he kills the guy. He buries him in the sand. The author of Genesis did that. He thought nobody was looking. But when he heard someone found out, he he fled to a place called Midian where he would settle down with a woman named Zipporah and enjoy his new life as a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock for the next 40 years, okay? Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. You can use this uh, name Horeb and Sinai interchangeably. Mount Sinai may be a summit of the larger Mount Horeb. Anyhow, he's tending these sheep, right? He looks over and he sees a burning bush. A bush that's clearly on fire, but it's not being consumed. So he says, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why is the bush not burned up? Can you imagine seeing something like this? This bush that is burning, but it's not being consumed? We do in some form, right? What about the sun? Still going strong. And don't fret now. The the people at space.com said it's going to last another 5 billion years. So we're we're good to go. I'm just glad they didn't say 5.7 billion years. Whenever they add the points is when I start giggling a little bit like a little girl. We got 5 billion years. They rounded up. Well, A mere 3,500 years ago, in verse 4, 
Yahweh saw that Moses turned aside to look, so God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now come. I will send you to Pharaoh, and so you, Moses shall bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, I want you to listen to what Moses says, okay? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Chapter 4, he'll say this. What if they will not believe me and will not listen to my voice? For they may say, Yahweh has not appeared to you, so Yahweh then turns the snake into a, or excuse me, a staff into a snake, makes Moses' hand leprous, then he heals it. He says, show him that staff. If they don't believe you, then I'll turn the very water of the Nile into blood. Moses then said to Yahweh in verse 10, please, Lord, I have never been a man of words, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your slave, for I am one with a hard mouth. A hard tongue. In other words, I'm not some great orator. Okay? I'm not an eloquent man. Even as I stand here talking before my Lord, I'm just a shepherd. God says, well, who made the mouths of men? Or who makes the man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? I will be with your mouth. I will give you the words. Again, Moses says, please send someone else. Then God gets angry and he says, essentially says, fine. Listen, take your brother Aaron with you if it makes you feel better. He's on his way here now. He can speak to the people. So he goes back to Egypt, right? Staff in hand, brother at his side, and the will of the sovereign Lord. He heads straight for Pharaoh. Most in here knows, know what happens next. Moses said to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. His heart is hardened. It happens repeatedly. God sends plagues, does in fact turn the Nile into blood. He sends frogs. He sends gnats. He sends flies. He kills the Egyptian livestock. He inflicts the Egyptian people with boils. He rains down fiery hail from the heavens, followed by swarms of locusts, and causes a deep darkness to fall upon the land. And finally, at the climax of it all, Yahweh sends one final plague. Okay? One last attempt to break through the hardened heart of Pharaoh in order for him to authorize the release of the Hebrew people. You ready? Chapter 11, verse 4. Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I am going out in the midst of Egypt. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, 
From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the servant girl who is behind the millstones. All the firstborn, even of the cattle. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not ever been before, and such as there shall never be again. But for any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may know how Yahweh makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt, or Egypt and Israel. What a statement of God's sovereignty there in verse 7, by the way. I'm going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, but I'm going to shut the mouths of all the canines in Israel. They won't let a single bark out, neither against man or beast. That's incredible. I wish he'd do that with my neighbor's dog. Right? Well, the, the, the last plague, as devastating as it is, has its desired effect. As the Hebrew people are let go, they're sent out of Egypt, not only freed from their bondage, but with handfuls and cartfuls of silver and gold and clothing from the Egyptians. They were paying them to leave. Please, just go. Then they go. They go, and we read that they were led by a uh, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. We read of the splitting of the Red Sea. We read of the manna from heaven. We read of the water from the rock, the quails coming up upon the earth, providing the people with meat as they constantly grumbled and complained. Then we read of the we read of their arrival at the base of Sinai, which was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. They'll be here at the base of this mountain throughout the whole rest of Exodus and, and Leviticus. Commandments are given. The Ark of the Testimony is built. Part promises are made. Covenants are made. A tabernacle is constructed. God is in the midst of the camp of the Israelites. Further, laws are given, customs are given, the priesthood is established, the Sabbath confirmed, all while Moses is meeting with the Lord. One day in chapter 30, chapters 31 and 32, he goes up, he receives the, the tablet of the testimony of God, the, the tablets, the work of Yahweh, written by the very finger of God himself. He goes back down to the camp. The people have stirred themselves into an idol-worshiping orgy, fashioning a gold calf from the spoil of the Egyptians and bowing down to worship it. After everything they'd seen Yahweh do, they're, they're bowing down to this golden calf. Moses throws this t- the tablets. He, he burns this calf. He grinds it up. He turns it into powder. He scatters, scatters it over the surface of the waters, makes the sons of Israel drink it. Yahweh then makes the men of the camp fasten swords to their thighs. They run back and forth across the camp, killing each other, slaying each other. 3,000 men died that very day. Finally, we get to Exodus 33. Back to our scripture reading from this morning. And this section of scripture, perhaps better than any other, in my opinion anyways, which ultimately means nothing, but in my opinion, Exodus 33 gives us the best picture of the human author of the book of Genesis, okay? Look at verse 1. After all that has taken place, including the the idolatry, including the ungratefulness, Yahweh basically said, listen, I, I made a promise, I always keep my promises, Yahweh spoke to Moses, go, 
Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying, to your seed I will give it. He said, I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then he says, for I will not go up in your midst because you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you on the way. I might just kill all of you too because of your hardness of hearts, your hard hearts. He told Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. You're obstinate. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would consume you. Now, as we keep reading, as we read earlier, he does end up going before them. Moses prays and says, look, if you're not leading us, how will the nations know that we belong to you? And eventually, Yahweh extends his amazing grace by saying yes to Moses' request. He says, yeah, I'll go up before you. But not before Moses makes another request, okay? And one of the most important statements, in my estimation, in all of Scripture. He says in verse 13, So now, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I might found, might found favor in your sight, find favor in your sight. Let me know your ways. Then it says in verse 18, show me your glory. We're all familiar with that. But I want to focus on that petition in verse 13. Let me know your ways that I may know you. What an interesting prayer this is from Moses. Let me know your ways. What in the world are you talking about, Moses? What about the bush, the commission, the staff, your hand, the plagues, the blood, the exodus? You walked out of Egypt. You, you plundered perhaps the strongest nation on earth at that time, with, which your people had been enslaved to for over 400 years. You didn't even pick up a weapon. What are you talking about? Show me your ways. What about the pillar of cloud by day, the fire by night? What about the splitting sea, the falling manna, the appearing quail? What about the thunder and the smoke at the base of the mountain you're now standing upon, speaking with the living God? Like you're talking with God. What do you mean, show me your ways? What ways is he talking about here? Well, for help with that, that question, we need to go no further than the Psalms, okay? Did you know that Moses' prayer was answered here? Oh, yeah, it was answered. Turn to Psalm 103, and you can see it. Yeah, Psalm of David. I pray you, I'm pleading with you, Lord. I'm begging you, show me your ways. David in Psalm 103, verse six says, this is exactly what happened. He said, Yahweh performs righteous deeds, judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. He made known his ways. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. My brothers and sisters, there's a significant difference between the ways of God and the acts of God, okay? Even unbelievers know the acts of an all-powerful God. 
for the very creation itself speaks of the acts of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the expanse declares the work of his hands, his acts. Okay? Moses had seen the acts of God. He's seen the miracles, but he wanted more. He, he now longed for the ways of God. He hungered and thirsted for the ways of God. What are the ways of God? Answer? The divine nature of God. Another way to say it, through very weak humanistic definitions, is the character of God. The attributes of God. What have been called the perfections of God. David says, Yahweh made known his ways to Moses. What ways, David? Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness. His divine character, his divine nature. Not just what he does, but who he is. We see a huge difference between Moses and some of the sons of Israel here. While all Israel saw the acts, these, these undeniable acts of, and, and miracles of Yahweh as well, when the going got tough, instead of praying to their Lord and remaining faithful to him, they succumbed to the wickedness of their own hearts. They grumbled, they doubted, they formed a golden calf and bowed down to it as their God, right? It's the same thing in our day today. It's the same thing with our time. We see the beauty of creation all around us. We see the miracle of the, the stars and the sun and the, the ocean waves. And yet most people will go through life worshiping the golden calves of their day, right? They're bending the knee to the created things rather than to the creator. And in the process, they miss out on truly knowing the ways of God as Moses did, and, and their whole lives ended up being a waste. Wasted lives on the temporal. One commentator said this, don't miss this distinction. Ways to Moses, acts to Israel. Ways speaks of deep intimacy. Acts speaks of superficial knowledge of, a God, of God. Excuse me. You may know LeBron James from his acts, his exploits as probably the world's greatest basketball player, but do you know his ways? Do you know him intimately, or do you just know about him? That's a big difference, end quote. I'll just ask you straight up this morning. Do you know the God of the Bible, or do you just know about him? A lot of folks know about him. Those liberal scholars that we talked about earlier, they probably know more facts about God than many of us in here. Original languages, historical and cultural contexts, archaeological findings. Go to the Iliff School of Theology down on Evans and University right now, right? Or that, that, that place is chocked full of people who know about God, but do they know God? They know about the Bible, but do they know the ways of God? Do they, do they know him? How about you? What about you? I love this. Another commentator said, Moses was almost obsessed with God. You want an obsession? Be obsessed with God. Moses was almost obsessed with God. He was still on earth, but he connected everything to God in heaven. Another strong theme in this section is to know. In some form, the word is used repeatedly in these verses in the sense of relationship. God knew Israel and Moses, and Moses wanted to know God. Uh, 
Can you say the same this morning, my brothers and sisters? Are you almost obsessed with God? Do, if not, do you long to know more of your creator? Do you long to know his ways? You say, well, how do I know? Well, I'll tell you right now. Uh, the only way to truly know God and his ways is to believe his glorious gospel of grace, which says that he came into the world as God in human flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life, yet was crucified on a Roman cross, taking the place of sinners, all who would turn from their sin, believe in his name, and call upon that name alone for salvation. This is the key element that's, that's missing in so many colleges and seminaries and liberal churches. This is what's missing today. True faith in the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's absolutely necessary to know the true and living God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So that by the power of his spirit, he can illuminate your hearts and your minds to the true meaning of his ways, which are found in detail in the special revelation of what? That's right. The scriptures. His divinely inspired word. And there's no better place to start than in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You want to know the ways of God? Not just the acts, not just the facts, but the ways? You want to know his character, his nature, his attributes, his perfection? I hope you do, because I can tell you where they're found. From Genesis to Revelation, starting with the Revelation in Genesis. That's where they're found. That's right. Even in the next few weeks alone, we'll learn about his ways. We'll study them. We'll truly know them. If, that is, we're truly in Christ and we're not just playing church. Next week, we'll look at Genesis 1-1. The week after that, Genesis 1-1. The week after that, Genesis 1-2. Amen. Lord willing, we'll get out of the third chapter just in time for the Psalms in June. Praise we have to take our time. Because it's in this book we begin to see the perfect nature of God on full display at the very foundations of the world. We'll learn that God is a spirit. He's not like us. He's not constrained to or restrained by a physical body. He's not bogged down by any material substance. He's not limited in any way. We'll see that right from the first verse. We'll learn of his eternality, the truth that he was never created. If he was created, whoever created him would be God, right? But he was not created because he is creator. He has always existed eternally, unconstrained by either space or time. Even Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. How did Moses know that? Because God revealed it to him. Like David says, he made known his ways to Moses. And now look at us. Look at all of us here. We just read that together. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From God to Moses to us. All through the power of his word and by the power of his spirit. We'll see his independence, his self-existence, that he is not dependent upon anyone or anything else in any sense of the word. Otherwise, again, 
uh, whoever or whatever source he was dependent upon for anything, whether power or justice or glory, what, whatever or whoever depended on, then that source would be God, right? Does that make sense? But he depends on nothing. He depends on nobody, certainly not his creatures. <laughs> we'll learn of his incomprehensibility. Again, we'll do our best in our finiteness to try to comprehend what it means for him not to be bound by the same limitations that we are. But at the end of the day, we have to be comfortable with saying, this is too deep, man. This is heavy stuff. It's profound. This is mind-blowing. But he said it so plainly that a child can understand it. So it's true. And he's God, and we are not God. Okay? We're not God. We'll learn of his unchangeable nature. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. If God changed, how could we ever take anything yet? He said, serious. Uh, how could we ever take anything, he said, including the salvations of our everlasting souls? Seriously, we couldn't. But he doesn't change. We'll see that in Genesis. We'll see that he is absolutely sovereign, not only over creation, but also over man's salvation. We'll see him create Adam, then curse Adam, then save Adam showing that he is a saving God. Then we'll see him call Abram. Someone after a sermon in Acts a few weeks back, they said, how can you say that God chooses who he saves and who he doesn't save? It wasn't like that for the Jews in the Old Testament. If I was in a chair, I'd have fallen right out of it. What about not killing Adam and Eve the moment they sinned? What about Noah for Pete's sakes? Okay, the Jews. What about Abraham walking around with his pagan worshiping father and family in the Ur of Chaldeans until Yahweh said, Abram, Abram, what about choosing Isaac instead of Ishmael? Calling Jacob instead of Esau? What about the whole of Israel? Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. In fact, you're the fewest. What about that? Some people in our churches today are nuts. What about Jacob and all his sons? What about Joseph? Come on. What about that little baby floating down the river who grew up walking his own ways, slaying Egyptians, tending sheep before he saw that bush burning in his peripheral vision? Moses. Moses. What do you mean God doesn't call those whom he saves? Choose those whom he saves. We just read it in Exodus 33, 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And we don't have any say in the matter. I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. We'll see it in Genesis. We'll see his holiness. He is perfectly holy, holy, holy. Perfectly pure and right and just and wrathful, yet also perfectly merciful and compassionate. We'll see his perfect saving nature. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. On that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Genesis 3. We'll see it. We'll see his perfect faithfulness, his loving kindness extended to those 
who belong to him. We'll see his ways through his word, which will help us navigate our way through this broken world. Before we know the ways of the Lord, we're we're just like Moses in chapter 3. We're afraid of him. We don't want to look at him or, or the truths of his word because we know that he knows the depths of our heart. He sees as nobody else sees in here. We can fool each other all day. Look at this sweater vest. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> V-neck, whatever. He sees our hearts. He sees our thoughts. He sees what we think about all day. So we hide from him. We know we can hide nothing from him. So we're ashamed. We're timid. We're afraid. Then he saves us by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He forgives us our sin, and he puts his own spirit within our hearts. We're, in, we're infants. We're, we're babes. We're feeding on the milk of God's word. Send someone else, we might say at this point. I'm not an eloquent speaker, we say. They won't believe me, we say. What if they don't like me, we say. We're not ready. But he causes us to grow, right? He causes us to grow through his word, and his spirit begins to conform us and shape us into the image of Christ. And after we get a taste of the living God, we, we know this is good, so we want more. Yeah. True believers yearn for more of him. We long for more of him. We are obsessed with him in his ways as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord so that We can now go out there and say to others, I want you to know this God too, right? He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just and righteous and unchanging and merciful and compassionate and loving. He is love. He will forgive you of all of your transgressions, past, present, and future, if you just would believe in the sacrificial death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would just believe in his gospel, And then we leave the saving to him, right? Why? Because we know of his sovereign ways. We know our Lord because he has clearly revealed himself to us in his word. His word. That's how significant these words are for the believer. Not just for the proclamation of truth, but for our day-to-day lives here on earth, right? The knowledge of his ways is more important to the believer than even food or water. How do we deal with the overwhelming issues in this life? We know his ways. How do we deal with all the strife and the conflict? We know his ways. The injustice that runs rampant in our world today, we know his ways. The sorrows, the afflictions, we know his ways. The sickness, the suffering, the pain, the death. We know his ways. And we move forward in this life, longing for the life to come, with all confidence, not in who we are, but in who we know. That's all by his grace alone. That's how the believer survives in this corrupted and cursed world system until we go home to be with him. We know his ways. We know our Lord. I know that's a long introduction for Genesis 1-1, but we'll be in this book for the next few years, so I didn't think it was a big deal. <laughs> but I want you to know that's my prayer for us here, okay? That's my prayer for, 
Lakewood Bible Chapel. We pray, Lord, show us your ways through Genesis. <clears throat> so we have the supplication of Moses at Sinai. I forgot about the outline. Uh, that's the first point. Lord, I pray, show me your ways. Then we have the revelation of God in Genesis. Okay, here are my ways. And lastly, the prioritization of God's word in the hearts of believers. Remember, this is only for believers here. <clears throat> if you're not a believer in Christ, I implore you, I beg you to cry out to him to save your everlasting soul today. He will do it. He will save you. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Saved from eternal wrath at his hands and saved to eternal glory with him forever. But this application here is for believers only. Okay? Regenerated men and women in Christ. It's not for the unbeliever. A lot of people out there today, they're making so-called resolutions, <laughs> saying they're going to start exercising, stop eating so much ice cream, spend more time with family, less time on the phone, read three books, accomplish such and such a goal at, at work. That's not a bad thing. These are good. There's nothing wrong with resolutions. They're good things. Other than maybe the gyms being packed for the next three weeks. <clears throat> Other than that. I don't want to get too cliche here on New Year's Day, but if you're looking for some resolutions, I've got three of them for you, okay? Just three very quick exhortation, exhortations to you on this Lord Day, okay? Number one, you want to know the ways of God? Make praying for the Lord to show you his ways a priority in your life, okay? If I could encourage us all to make one resolution this morning, and not just for the next few weeks, not just for the next few months or in 2023, but for the rest of our lives here on earth, it would be that we pray what Moses prayed in Exodus 33, verse 13. Lord, let me know your ways so that I may know you. Okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, <clears throat> we may have been Christians for many years, but have we ever really longed for some personal, direct knowledge and experience of God? Oh, I know, we pray for causes, we pray for the church, we pray for missionaries, we pray about our own efforts that we organize, yes, but that's not what I'm concerned about. We'll ask for personal blessings, but how much do we know of this desire for God himself? That's a great question. How much do we know of this desire for God himself? That's a great question. What do you say? Well, you pray as Moses did. Let me know your ways. Every time you read his word, every time you listen to his word or write down his word or prepare to teach his word, I would encourage you to pray like Moses that he would make his ways known to you. Okay, number two. Let's make our individual reading of God's word an absolute priority in our lives, okay? Ask the Lord to show you his ways, yes, but then let's not be so foolish to neglect the means by which he has chosen to reveal them to you. Amen. You can't just say, show me your ways. Show me. I'm looking for them. You end up a charismatic. <laughs> the believer has to be in his word. It's not an option. Read it. Listen to it. Consume it by any means every day. You don't get in the Word, you're going to crash and burn. Your marriage will crash and burn. Your role as a father, mother, crash and burn. Employee, everything will go down. I'd recommend reading it in the morning personally. 
Give the Lord your best. Again, Moses says in Psalm 90, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy, be glad all of our days. Set a time. Find a place. Get up 30 minutes earlier if you have to. Just be alone with the Lord. Like Moses was on this mountain, right? Go to a mountain if you need to. They're right there. (laughs) Go through a plan. You need a plan, you just let the elders know. But be in the word every single day. All of your days. Know his ways every day. And I understand the difficulty here. There are so many things to distract us. It's really a matter of discipline as well as desire. I love what one preacher said a few years back. He said, if you have time to read other books, but you don't have time to read the Bible, you don't have time to read other books. (laughs) You have time to watch TV, but you don't have time to read the Bible. You don't have time to watch TV. Same for the football games. The Facebook, the cell phones, video games. Don't even get me started on video games. (laughs) I mean, if you're over the age of 15. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying, all I'm saying here is that there's a constant battle for your mind. There's a constant battle for our attention, our affection, our time. And we're either learning the ways of the world or we're learning the ways of our Lord. I would implore you, make your individual reading of God's word an absolute priority in your life. Finally, number three, and there could be many more. Glad you're all here this morning, by the way. (laughs) Number three, make coming together with the rest of the body to be instructed by God's word a priority in your life. We are a people of excuses. I'm tired. Oh, I have family in town. I'm upset with somebody. Somebody, it makes me so sad to go there. I'm mad. I have a lunch date. The kids had some sort of activity we had to go to. Oh, we went hiking. That's my favorite. We went hiking. Again, I ask, are, are we a people who worships the creation or the creator? Seriously. Parents. Our children will learn real quick what we value most in this life. Then they'll do the same things when they become adults, right? If they even go to church. Think about it for a minute. You know, COVID really did a number on churches. You had corrupt politicians throwing around the words essential and non-essential. Then the nominals say, oh, it's not essential. I'll go hiking. We just heard it's the most essential. Enough with this virtual nonsense, too. It's not even close to being the same thing. Not even close. The church gathers together to worship together, to be instructed through the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread, fellowship, and prayer. We come together to remember the sacrificial death of Christ for sin. Then we scatter. Okay? Then we disperse into this dying world to tell lost men and women what we've learned here together. That's why they say church is not essential, because they don't want us here talking about the Lord and then going out telling other people about it. They want us at home by ourselves in front of our computers. Forget it. 
They certainly don't want us out and about being a witness for Christ. But we must make it a priority. This coming together on the Lord's Day. The author of Hebrews said, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Don't forsake it, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're doing right now. Literally. Don't forsake coming here. Be here every single week if you can. Both services, by the way. If you're a believer, you should be at the Lord's Supper service. That may be the more, more important service to be at. It's where we take communion. We get the updates. We get prayers. We get the announcements. We pray for our missionary. We, that's where we do the in-house believer business stuff. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I have to go before the Lord and say, I'm a, my mouth, it doesn't work right. Send someone else. <laughs> But come, come to both. We want you here. Let's worship together and sing the praises of our Lord together. Let's remember the sacrifice of Christ together and learn the ways of our Lord together as his body, right? Then we go out into the earth, the world, and be salt to a decaying earth and light to a dark world. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, that'll about do it for the introduction here. Next week, Lord willing, if he doesn't come back for his church, which would be the preference, of course, (laughs) if he doesn't come back before next week, we'll be here opening up his glorious word together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have Noel and the musicians come up, lead us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, let us know your ways. And uh, we just give you praise and honor and glory that thus far you have through your word. But we want more. And we, 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 we've tasted, we've seen that the Lord is good. We, you are good and we want more, Lord. We just thank you so much for, again, the privilege of the opportunity to come together as your church, your body, and be edified and encouraged by your inspired word. We, we love you so much. We love your son. We love your gospel. And we love... Uh, your word, in Jesus' name, amen.